Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, a staple of Louisiana kitchens for nearly 40 years. Maker of batters, coatings, boils, tartar sauce, cocktail sauce, and more. Dig into homemade Louisiana flavor. From our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. The summer of 2022 is looking like the greatest vacation time ever. After enduring a lot of stay-at-home time over the last two years, there's a lot of pent-up party just waiting to happen right here in one of America's favorite playgrounds, New Orleans. Any visit to the Crescent City these days should include View Orleans, a fantastic $20 million multimedia experience that opened earlier this year at the foot of Canal Street. On this week's show, we're taking the full ride at View Orleans, an experience that includes a trip to the 34th floor to see New Orleans as you've never seen it before. And then we're traveling to Egypt, thanks to the New Orleans Museum of Art, which has rolled out the red carpet for Queen Nefertari, the royal wife of Ramses II. Chef Chris Montero of Cafe Noma and Khalid Hagazi of Pharaoh's Cave in Situ's Kitchen have cooked up authentic tastes of Egypt to further embellish the museum-goers' experience at Noma this summer. Finally, we'll top off the tour with a visit to the Sazerac House, where the history of New Orleans in a cocktail glass is demystified daily. So pack your bags. We're going on vacation on this week's Louisiana Eats. There's just something about New Orleans that stirs up passion among out-of-towners. Locals, too, of course, but I mean there's something about this city that people take with them after they come for a visit or after they live here and move elsewhere. They take a bit of New Orleans along with them, and whether they come back by car, plane, or train, visiting the city is almost like a homecoming. You know who the train is welcoming? New Orleans' favorite daughter, Hoda Copy, back <laughs> to her favorite place. What did it feel like to land? Let me tell you something. This is the best place on earth. It is. Just ask Today Show hosts Hoda Kotby and Jenna Bush Hager. In the 1990s, Hoda worked in New Orleans as an anchor and reporter for a CBS affiliate. And although she's not from here, Jenna can barely contain her excitement when talking about the city. When they rolled into town recently to broadcast the Today Show from Jackson Square, we had the chance to ask them why the Today Show chooses to come here again and again. Here's Hoda. 
because it is like an energy jolt to our soul. When you land here, when you walk around, when you meet the people here, like your 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 body goes from like slumped over and funky to literally like electrified. Yes. I and mean, we've been electrified since we got here. I mean, it's the best city. And yeah. you know what? You have a food a food show. You yeah. wouldn't have it about any city. Yeah. You know, oh, this no, is this is it. The capital of when eating. I- well, speaking of eating in New Orleans, when you come here, yeah. is there something you eat first or what's on your must-eat-always list? Okay, you got to have a beignet to start. I love to go either to Brennan's or Commander's. I like kind of old school. It yeah. just puts me back in that feeling. I love the barbecue shrimp. I want the piece of French yes. bread crunchy. I want to dunk Dip. it in the sauce. Dip. I just want to lick. Ha-ha. Dip it. I know you can't see me, but I'm slurping, Dip. eating, and crunching. Eat Delicious. It. Eat it. Uh-huh. Um, I love Antoine's, yes, which I we haven't been yet, but maybe we can squeeze yeah, it in. Yeah, we can squeeze it in. Um, we went to um, Le Petite Grocery. Mm-hmm. We went to, yeah. where else did we? Uh, Justine's. Justine's, yeah. which we loved. Yeah, um, we went to Miss, Miss Rivers. Miss Rivers. Uh, Miss Rivers, that food Lillette? was sick. Lillette? The fried chicken with the dunking. With the honey. Know. Come on, Poppy. Uh, now, this was your home, yes. Hoda, for yes. quite some yes. time. What are the things here in New Orleans that make you feel at home? The corner of Charters and Governor Nichols is the apartment where I lived, uh, right next to Karen Swenson. Right near there is a Croissant Door, the coffee shop that has buttery, delicious almond croissants and that thick chicory coffee. And I remember every morning, because I worked the afternoon shift, going there, grabbing a coffee, oh. eating that croissant, reading the paper, walking the quarter, feeling the love, the heat. I loved every single piece of it, but it was the little things. It's not so much, I mean, I love Jazz Fest and Mardi yeah. Gras, love, 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 but most of life is not that day. Most of life is Wednesday in New Orleans. So what do you do on Wednesday? You do that. You you enjoy like the day, the people, the life, and you hear music coming out of different corridors and you think to yourself, was that Aretha Franklin? You're like, no, it's a 10-year-old who sounds like her, just singing. Like, that's what it's like. Why do people need to come to New Orleans? Why is this a tourist mecca? They are, look, everyone's dusty and tired and closed in and they're becoming introverts. It's time to rip off your corset and get on the plane, okay? It's time to let your freak flag fly. Oh, yeah, and okay. there's Thank no better city. You. Thank you, ladies. Whether you're a tourist or a local, there's so much about New Orleans to engage with. It's history, it's culture, it's cuisine. And if you're looking for an introduction to, or a refresher course on all three, there's a brand new exhibit designed to do just that. With the 2021 opening of the Four Seasons New Orleans at the foot of Canal Street, comes a new high-tech immersive exhibit called View Orleans. The multi-million dollar experience is designed to connect visitors with our city in a new way. Before we take you on a virtual tour from the bottom to the 360-degree view on top, let's meet three people closely involved in the project. We begin with the CEO of the Woodward Design and Build Architecture Firm, who was there from the start. I'm Paul Flower, and I am the co-developer of View Orleans and the Four Seasons uh, Project. People may not realize it, but 
the building and land is actually owned by the New Orleans Building Corporation, uh, which is a uh, public benefit corporation for the city of New Orleans. So we have a 99 year lease on that building and under an obligation to develop it into a four seasons and just a line in the lease that said, and some sort of museum or attraction for the public. So we decided if we were gonna do it, we go all into it. Two of my partners are friends with Henry Louis Gates. And so they talked him into helping with this. And uh, we knew Larry Powell, author of The Accidental City real well. And we said, can you help too? Because we want something that's historically accurate. I am Lawrence N. Powell, former professor of history at Tulane and the historical consultant for View Orleans. An old friend from graduate school days at Yale, Henry Louis Gates, he's the one who got me involved. He was involved with the developers up in Cambridge, and uh, they got together and they, we put in, they were putting in a proposal to redevelop the old World Trade Center, but the one of the stipulations was that they needed some kind of cultural attraction. An attraction that would bring our city's history to life with the kind of magic an interactive exhibit can bring. For that, they brought in some different kinds of experts. So I am Jim Cortina, principal at Cortina Productions, and we were part of the design and production team that worked on the fabulous new Vue Orleans. And our focus is on the technology side. So that includes interactive exhibits, films, videos, soundscapes, everything on the digital media side that you know, helps people gain an understanding you know, of a topic or simply just have fun. So a few uh, large projects that we've worked on more recently, uh, the Smithsonian, uh, African-American History and Culture Museum in Washington, D.C. We've worked also at the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington, D.C. We've also worked around the country. Locally, you can find their work at the Museum of the Southern Jewish Experience, the Audubon Aquarium, and the National World War II Museum. Here's Lawrence Powell. It was a back and forth with the design team, the Cortina Productions, and they worked really hard in this. But, you know, if you're not from New Orleans, you could be misled on the Internet. And so it was a matter of they came up with these ideas and they researched it. Then I worked with them. And I, you know, I tried to say, let's, let's massage it here. Let's add more. Uh, we need a new detail. We need a new take. For their exhibits, Cortina Productions creates what they call augmented, mixed, and virtual realities. Again, Jim Cortina. So augmented reality is really something that just comes between you and something real and physical. So it can be a layer that you hold up your smartphone and it in some way changes your view or enhances your view. Virtual reality is where you block out, you know, basically the world around you completely. So that's where you're immersed in a set of you know, goggles that doesn't allow you to see around. Um, mixed reality is a combination of the two. And, you know, they all can come together to really transport people to new experiences. 
As you first step into the View Orleans experience, you can see what Jim's talking about almost immediately. Local jazz luminaries like Wendell Brunius, Shannon Powell, and Roger Lewis second line through the room, leading the way onward. And then you're greeted by a cast of characters as lively as the city itself. With just a wave of your hand, local legends like Henrietta DeLille, Marie Laveau, and George Leidenheimer appear life-size before you to tell you tales of the New Orleans of yore. I am George Leidenheimer. By the time I arrived in New Orleans, German culture was thriving. When I set up my own bakery in 1896, everyone in the city wanted Up next is the exhibit I'm the most fond of, although I have to admit I'm a little biased, the Story Cafe. Take a seat at the counter and peruse the virtual menu, and then learn all about your chosen dish, prepared on the screen by PBS host Kevin Belton and... Well, modesty forbids. How about a Ramestrian fizz for our visitor? Well, it starts off with an egg, so that's certainly the first part of a breakfast cocktail. And here we go. I got a little ice in the shaker. Whether you're in the mood for a hearty gumbo or a frothy gin fizz, the cafe is an interactive education in local flavor. Oh, look at this. I got to finish it with a little parsley for you. There's your gumbo Beautiful. <gasps> Ooh, be careful. Don't burn your mouth on this one. Drop it on their lap, then it'll really <laughs> burn. You know, I tell you what, if, if it drops, woof. Wow, ooh, that's hot. Now, you may hear the sounds of sousaphones again, because in the next room, is an immersive encounter with the incredible music New Orleans is known for. From Dr. John to Alan Toussaint, this exhibit will guide you through the history of music in the city that's always marched to the beat of its own drum. And just around the corner is another familiar voice in the View River Theater. The Mississippi never lies at rest. It was. Irma Thomas, the soul queen of New Orleans, narrates a stunning short film about the converging cultures that molded New Orleans, from the swampy port city to the bustling cultural hotspot we know today. Here's Paul Flower. The film narrated by Irma Thomas that, you know, Larry Powell and I, when we were sitting in there and first saw it, we had tears come to our eyes. Anybody that loves New Orleans will have an emotional uh, outpouring, I think, when they see that film. At View Orleans, even the elevators are an experience all their own. Step in, and suddenly, the walls transform into scenes of moonlit marshes, marching bands, and the Mississippi River rushing past. Watch out! On the 33rd floor, you get incredible views of New Orleans from all 360 degrees. You can see Canal Street as it stretches all the way to Mid-City. 
admire just how small the French Quarter truly is when it's laid out in front of you, and you can even catch sight of planes taking off from the lakefront airport. Again, Paul Flower. You can see the 360 view of New Orleans, and when you do that, you can visit the augmented reality stations that are a great way to learn about historical uh, buildings that you were looking at. Here's Jim Cortina. So we did it with 360 degree photography. We had a really talented uh, photographer from New Orleans go up on that building, take our photographs on a beautiful, you know, day uh, of in every direction around. And that's what's incredible about that observation deck is you just see everywhere. And then what we wanted to do was augment, right, that view that you have with neighborhoods so people can get an understanding of where the neighborhoods are in New Orleans and then places to visit and see an interesting history. And what it does is it pops up as you pan the digital display, these attractions, these places and neighborhoods and everything pop up in your view. And then you can touch on those and read a story about each one. And if you look at the floor, we wanted to show how New Orleans operates by a New Orleans compass. Again, Lawrence Powell. We don't say you go north, south, east, west. We think you either go towards the lake or toward the river. You go uptown or you go downtown. And so if you look, there's another compass that is set in the floor. It was important to make sure there was a lot of content, rich content, and it was comprehensive and it was accurate. You know, because it's very easy if you just rely on, you know, conventional sources that you could get a lot wrong. All right, full ahead. Avoid that barge. As part of the exhibit, you get to virtually take the helm of a container ship and try your best to steer it around Algiers Point. You are the helmsman, and I need you to get this container ship, Rosebud, safely around Algiers Point and on to the Port of New Orleans. This stretch... That's great. Again, Jim Cortina. What came out of that, too, was just a, was a fun game, you know, where you get to steer a container ship <laughs> around the most challenging bend on the Mississippi and having a New Orleans river pilot as our expert. So you couldn't ask for, for more than that. Finally, the piece de resistance. Take the elevator one floor up to the 34th floor and gone are all the screens and exhibits. Step outside to the open-air observation deck, and you can see for miles and miles in every direction. Here's Paul Flower. Well, first of all, let's all remember that the 34th floor, what is the 34th floor now, used to be the roof. And the story behind that is I was up there one day, and I saw this ladder that goes to a roof hatch, and I rickety old ladder, and I walked up, and and uh, went through the roof hatch and stood on the roof and looked around and said, my, what a view. This is just terrific outside and you feel the air and everything. So I mentioned it to one of my partners. Well, that grew into, oh, we, he came down, did the same thing, said, we got to add a 34th floor. <laughs> so when you walk out there and you have that glass, structural glass wall, and you can see the city in a way that you just can't see it any place else. 
That was Paul Flower, Lawrence Powell, and Jim Cortina. Just three among the scores of technicians, architects, artists, and entertainers who made View Orleans possible downtown at the foot of Canal Street. For more information on the exhibit, visit VUEOrleans.com. Coming up next, we celebrate the Queen Nefertari exhibit at the New Orleans Museum of Art with a taste of authentic Egyptian cuisine. Louisiana Eats returns after the break. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Camellia Brand, Beans Done Right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923. Now inviting you to become a member of the Camellia Brand crew with their new box subscription program. Shipped quarterly to your door with up to 10 surprise ingredients inside, it's like having a Mardi Gras parade through your kitchen all year long. To learn how to become a member of the Camellia Brand crew, visit CamelliaBrand.com. Support also comes from Rouse's Markets, synonymous with seafood straight from Louisiana's waterways. Rouse's Markets tastes like home. And from Crystal Hot Sauce, made with three simple ingredients, aged red cayenne peppers, distilled white vinegar, and salt. Nothing artificial. Crystal Hot Sauce, how New Orleans does flavor. Back in 1977, King Tut set America on fire when the boy king toured the U.S. with an exhibit that changed the way we view ancient Egypt. Here in New Orleans, we even transformed Leelong Drive, the approach to the museum's doors, to mimic the mighty Nile. We'll move over, Tut. Queen Nefertari has sailed into the New Orleans Museum of Art, and she's showing us all girl power in a whole new light. Queen Nefertari was the royal wife of one of Egypt's most famous pharaohs, Ramses II, who reigned in 13th century BCE. Linked to some of ancient Egypt's most spectacular monuments, Nefertari is depicted in sculpture and imagery associated with Ramses. Known as Egypt's most beautiful queen, her tomb is the largest and most richly decorated in the Valley of Queens, and there's a complete temple consecrated to her in Abu Simbel. Noma's dazzling exhibit currently on display through July 17th, includes 230 exceptional objects showcasing the legacy of the royal wives, sisters, daughters, and mothers of the pharaohs. But at Noma, Queen Nefertari has also been brought to life culinarily. 
Chef Chris Montero of Cafe Noma collaborated with Khalid Hagazi to bring the most authentic tastes of Egypt to the Crescent City. We sat down with the two of them to learn more. First, Chef Chris explained his relationship with Noma. So, you know, uh, my relationship is that we created Cafe Noma shortly after Hurricane Katrina, which is the uh, food service outlet and amenity for uh, New Orleans Museum of Art. And we've been there for quite a few years. And as long as we've been there, we've become more and more of an educational entity and culinary and educational. So we we create menus that uh, kind of pair and link to whatever exhibits are going on or whatever seasonally and using fresh ingredients. And uh, this new exhibit, this Egyptian exhibit, uh, is exactly where we like to flex our muscles and kind of have fun. Khaled, I think there is a tremendous amount of misunderstanding about Egyptian cuisine because people just think, oh, yes, 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 it's Mediterranean food. Would you talk us through what makes Egyptian food special and unique? Egyptian food's different than the Mediterranean. The only part where the Mediterranean food meet the Egyptian is in Alexandria, Egypt, because of the influence of the French and the Lebanese. And, you know, uh, Alexandria was like the big hub for all the way until the 40s in Egypt. But the Egyptian food, the diversity too, makes it like uh, a lot richer than any others. And it's just the problem with the Egyptian cuisine is Egyptian cuisine based, uh, like woman-based and a lot of the women, they don't travel abroad. And uh, men, they do more than women. So our cuisine as an Egyptian is not really popular overseas because of the lack of the creativity of the feminine part in it. Ah, because the ladies are all at home cooking up that delicious Egyptian food, and you got to go to Egypt to get it then, that's, right? That's the, that's the truth. That's where I learned from, actually. So, Chris, how in the world do you prepare for this? I don't imagine you had any Egyptian food in your culinary trick bag before, huh? For those very reasons that Khaled expressed, it was quite a challenge to try. There were no Egyptian restaurants active here in New Orleans post-COVID. There were one or two prior um, with it, that was a real kind of homogenous kind of Mediterranean Egyptian cuisine. So we went on a search for a consultant, and uh, that was proved to be very difficult. But lo and behold, a friend of ours, uh, a local food writer, mentioned a gentleman here in the city by the name of Khaled Hagazi sitting next to me right now, and that was the real key for me because we needed someone that we could actually hands-on develop menus. You know, it's a lot of it has to do with not just recipes, yeah, if you've, if you've created uh, dishes for menus and uh, started restaurants, we have to see it and touch it and taste it and kind of understand the process. And college has just been amazing at assisting us in, in developing this menu for uh, the exhibition. Now, Khaled, you don't have a restaurant. Instead, you have an import and retail business called Pharaoh's Cave. Tell me about your business and how do you come to be here in New Orleans? I came here in 2001. My uh, friend back in 1994, uh, I have a friend from Mobile, Alabama. He used to live in Alexandria, Egypt. We spend uh, a lot of time together, and every time we walk around, he always talk about how these things remind him of New Orleans, the food, the culture, 
the music, the art, everything. We walk in Alexandria, Egypt, he would say, he always bring New Orleans. And when I got a chance to come to the state, I just came straight here. And I fall in love with the city. And I'm my mom's boy, and I want to be able to go back and forth to Egypt. So I don't want to get a job that will keep me here and keep me away from Egypt. I need to keep my ties to be connected to Egypt. So I found the idea of importing and exporting things that will be the best thing for me because it gives me a chance at least to travel once a year or twice sometimes. So I've been doing it for since 2004. Tell me about your relationship with Egyptian food. I, growing up, uh, I have a little incident. If I hope you don't mind if I tell you. I was, uh, I kept, I was kept home and not to be able to go as a young man and play in the streets. So I was home most of the time with the women, uh, learning everything that we will do at home. So I learned how to cook, how to sew, and everything about the housework. So I learned to cook from my mother, my grandmother, my aunts, my everybody, all the community there. You know, Egyptian uh, cooking, uh, you guys here say that uh, eating is a social experience. Actually, it's the opposite in Egypt. Cooking is the uh, the social experience. Four or five ladies gather together and just start make a big meal for three houses around. So I learned from them and become my passionate test. I want to cook. I love to cook. And uh, when I got here, you know, I got married and I now have a kid that she loves to cook and she's a great chef too, I, I think. What is your daughter's name? Rativa. She's actually in school at the New Orleans Center for the Creative Arts. She's in the culinary program She's over there. in the culinary department, yeah. She's a great teacher for me. She <laughs> always talked to me about, you know, the protein and the acidity and all. She's learning the food as a science, too. So even though there's, there's a dearth of Egyptian food here in New Orleans, once in a while, people have an opportunity to taste your food. Tell me about... That little pop-up thing. A couple years ago, me and my friend, Mike Kerwin, a great musicians and a great cook, and we, a lot of time we hang out together and cook at our houses. And he, like, you know, he came up with the idea, why don't we bring our food to the people? Because, you know, a lot of our friends always ask about, when is the next meal? You know, I always, like at least three, four times a year, you know, I have a big meal with like 30 to 40 people with the big roast lamb and lots of Egyptian food. And I feel so happy doing that. You know, my wife is like, you work so much. You're like, it's a lot of food. And just like, it's just something I feel very satisfied just doing it. And I did it a couple times with him. Anyway, he came up with the idea, let's, you know, do a pop-up since pop-ups start to be, you know, more popular around in the streets of New Orleans. So it was an access for us to give the people the, some of the taste of the Egyptian food and the Lebanese food. What is the name of your pop-up? It's Sito's Kitchen. Sito is the Arabic word for grandmothers because me and Mike both we learned from our mothers and grandmothers and the people in the villages. So 
Let's talk about this collaboration between the two of you. Right. What an amazing experience uh, because uh, Ian, of course, introduced me to what his background was. And I went to his shop and, and surprised him and introduced myself and said, you know, we'd like to work together. And Colin expressed a great interest in this exhibit and how proud he is that we're going to be, as we all are, you know, focusing on Egypt and the museum. And Colin's been helping us since uh, develop the menus for Noma for five months at the cafe. You know, the queens are very, she is very generous. She's bringing all her jewelry and all her, you know, little details of history and life and also bringing a lot with the food. So if you step into Noma and try a taste of even one thing, I bet you're going to taste something that you never tasted before, a spice or like some type of food. You know, there is something there. It's going to be totally new. Not, I don't want to say all, but at least one or two items that of something that you're going to taste you never had before. Well, I am so excited. What an incredible cultural event here in New Orleans. Gentlemen, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Poppy. It's always a pleasure. Thank you so much. See you at Noma. Chris Montero of Cafe Noma and Khalid Hagazi of Pharaoh's Cave and pop-up Situ's Kitchen. What is the difference between the Middle Eastern falafel most of us are accustomed to and the falafel made in Egypt? Stay tuned. And we'll answer that question when we come right back. I'm Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats. Edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, breadings, boils, new air fry mixes, and more classic Louisiana dishes available everywhere. Dig into homemade Louisiana flavor. And from the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission, Located 40 minutes north of New Orleans French Quarter along the shores of Lake Pontchartrain. The delicious Tammany taste culinary scene and an abundance of soft adventure attractions are among the many reasons to love the North Shore's charming communities. Find details on upcoming events, itinerary suggestions, and more at louisiananorthshore.com. Here's this week's culinary quiz question, brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. What is the difference between the Middle Eastern falafel most of us are accustomed to and the falafel made in Egypt? One of the most surprising things I learned from Khalid Hagazi concerned Egyptian falafel. 
Those crunchy balls of yumminess, often served in pita bread accompanied by lettuce and tomato and dressed with tahini, are commonplace across America today. Most correctly identify falafel with Mediterranean cuisine, which cuts a pretty broad swath across Greece, Turkey, Syria, Israel, Palestine, and Egypt. The popular street food that some claim to be the national dish of Israel is usually made from ground chickpeas, but in Egypt, it's the fava bean that's used in the base instead. Fava beans love that alluvial soil along the Nile and are amazingly prolific there. And although they look similar, Egyptians even have their own name for falafel, tamaya, which are served with the same tahini sauce as in the rest of the Mediterranean countries. You can taste real, authentic tamaya and lots of other Egyptian specialties during Queen Nefertari's reign at the New Orleans Museum of Art this summer. Stop in Cafe Noma to explore the cuisine of Egypt or follow Situ's Kitchen on Instagram to see where Khaled Hagazi will be popping up next. I'm Poppy Tooker, and amazingly... Egyptian food does make for some good Louisiana eats. Located at the intersection of Canal and Magazine Streets in New Orleans, the historic Sazerac House is an elegant, Italianate-style building erected in the 1960s. The grand structure sat vacant for over three decades until 2017, when the Sazerac Company began renovation to make it the new home place for their company. Today, it holds their head offices, an event space, retail shop, micro-distillery, and three floors of what they call a spirited experience. Featuring life-size videos, virtual reality bartenders, and interactive displays, the Sazerac House is a whimsical booze museum that would make Walt Disney proud. It presents the story of New Orleans cocktails as told through the Sazerac Company's own brands, a story that takes us back to the 19th century. I am Rhiannon Enlil, the experienced team leader at Sazerac House. Please take a spot on a floor clang and I'll introduce you a little bit to what this room is and the importance of this being the start of our journey together. Against the back wall, we have two important exhibits that explain coffeehouse culture of New Orleans in the 1800s, as well as pharmacies and apothecaries in New Orleans in the 1800s. Because both of those words, we now have different definitions for them. We know coffee houses go work on my laptop, get a cup of joe, maybe read the paper. But in New Orleans back then, a coffee house was a sophisticated place for drinking. We had bars and saloons and taverns. But a coffee house was where you would go if you wanted to conduct business and network and have fancy drinks, essentially what we would think of today as cocktails. Pharmacies, as well as coffee houses in New Orleans, were places to get medicinal alcohol. At the time, pharmacists believed that putting different botanicals into spirits might be able to cure some ailments. 
And one in particular pharmacist, a very, very famous one by the name of Amity Peixot, is a key player in the story of the Sazerac cocktail. So we're entering into Peixot's apothecary, or what we refer to as our bitters experience. So the importance of bitters in general is that if you think about that word cocktail, we now use it to describe any number of drinks that have different combinations of alcohol. But in the 1800s, the word cocktail was defined as a spirit of any kind, sugar, water, and bitters. So if you want to be really technical, is it, it might not be considered a cocktail unless it has bitters. So here we are in what feels like an old apothecary shop. And there are these bins along the wall. Let's see, there's gentian, star anise, fennel, celery seed, angelica root, bitter orange peel. So all these different ingredients are the different botanicals, herbs, roots, flowers, dried citrus peels, all the different ingredients that would go into a proprietary blend of bitters. There were bitters for all these different regions throughout the world, and there were different popular bitters in different areas. New Orleans had Peixot's bitters. It was the most popular brand of bitters here, and it is the longest surviving original brand of bitters in the city of New Orleans. And it is, in fact, one of the key ingredients in the Sazerac cocktail, so much so that in the legislation that was passed in 2008, making the Sazerac the official cocktail of New Orleans, it calls out Peixos by brand name. You can't have a Sazerac without Peixos bitters. You cannot have a Sazerac without Peixos bitters. So, oops, sorry. So this room, this room is where we learn about the origin of Sazerac, that word, who it was, what it really comes from. And it starts with a gentleman by the name of Bernard Sazerac, and essentially the Sazerac de Forge family was making their own cognac, which was imported to New Orleans, and it was extraordinarily popular, so that a particular coffee house, Remember Coffee House? Yes. So the particular Coffee House decided they were going to change the name to the Sazerac House, essentially to advertise to the community that if you wanted the Sazerac cognac that everyone loves so much, you could always get it at the Sazerac House. Well, at the Sazerac House, if you asked for a brandy or cognac cocktail, they were going to reach for Sazerac cognac, sugar water, and Peixot's bitters. It starts to come together to form the cocktail. The cocktail will eventually evolve and turn into the company, and the company will eventually become the number one spirits producer in, the, in North America. One of the fun little surprises that occurs starting in this room are these magic mirrors. There are these huge mirrors that as you walk closer, it will sense your movement and trigger a fantastic animation and music. Incredible, so you don't even have to touch. It will do two different cycles. Um, and then each one of these mirrors will have one or two different visuals to just sort of surprise and delight. It is just like the Disneyland of cocktails, isn't it? <laughs> it really is. <laughs> so what's, what's next? All right, let's take a walk over to the sample station and get a little taste of a Sazerac cocktail. As we continue down and around the subsequent floors, more amazing alcoholic artifacts were revealed, as well as Disney-esque interactive kiosks, including a virtual bar where I had a virtual cocktail, a whiskey mule at Miss Marie's Lounge. So I touch the screen. Hey, darling. How's it going? You look like you could use a drink. I'll just give you a minute. 
And if you need me, just give a holla. My name's Marie. A whiskey mule. Whiskey mule, you got it. <laughs> there were also kid-friendly sample stations serving freshly squeezed lemonade for the kids. Finally, back on the ground floor, we were handed off to David Bach, production manager and head distiller of the Sazerac House, who led us through the distillation process. This is the production side of the Sazerac House. We are actually producing Sazerac rye whiskey. Um, this is what it takes. We tried to fit it all in in this tiny, narrow space that you see around you. Sazerac rye, like Rhianna was saying, uh, is primarily three grains. For it to be a rye whiskey means that it needs to be at least 51% rye grains. Um, the other two grains in there are corn and barley. We bring those grains in right here in our large grain handler. It looks like a massive piece of equipment that can crush you. Yeah? No big deal. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we bring in 1,000 pounds of grains right here in large super sacks and hang them over here over our auger turn the auger on and it'll drop them into one of our four cookers, cooking tanks, um, which are these really shiny pretty tanks right here. Inside these tanks will have warm water. What we're going to do is we're going to take that carbohydrate molecule that can be found in grains and we're going to break it into uh, simple and complex sugars. Once we have a big sugary sweet mess, we add yeast on top of that and the yeast eats the sugar and turns it into booze and bubbles, ethanol and CO2. So what happens is once the fermentation is done, we'll uh, send it down through the, through the bottom of the tank, over the doorway, and into our still. Sazerac rye is a double distillate, which means I'll take that spirit, run it through the still once, collect it over here, and then take it and put it back in the still and run it a second time. On that second time, the alcohol will come across in three phases, the heads, the hearts, and the tails. Um, once we have that good amount of hearts, It'll be about 160 proof. We'll add water to it to make it barrel strength, and then we'll pump it from these tanks into a barrel where it'll sit for six years. We have been here since October of 2019, um, and so through that process, uh, we have been producing alcohol. Each one of those large tanks, one of our 1,000-gallon fermenters and cookers, will produce one barrel of whiskey. So we're producing, not as fast as they do in Kentucky, but we're definitely producing alcohol and making it, uh, making the best spirit we can down here. And the great part is being able to see those streetcars come right behind the still as you're sitting here working. You know, it's really pretty to be in this location at the corner of Canal and Magazine. You get to see all the people walk by and ooh and ah, that pretty, pretty still. That was Rhiannon Enlil and David Bach of the Sazerac House. That's it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Looking for some summertime fun? The last Sunday of every month, we're hosting a Poppy's Pop-Up Drag Brunch at Tujac's Restaurant. This family-friendly event includes three courses, five drag queens, and of course, bottomless mimosas. Reservations may be made online and by calling 504-525-8676. And... 
Our friends at Octavia Books are hosting a special talk and book signing for my latest collaborative effort, Tony Mandina's Kitchen, at 6 p.m. on Thursday, June 2nd. I'll be leading the discussion, and Colette Mandina will be serving their famous meatballs. Don't miss the delicious fun. You can catch up on previous editions of Louisiana Eats on poppytooker.com, where we have 10 years of Louisiana Eats editions available for pod and webcasting, along with recipes and cooking class videos, too. If you like our show, please rate it on your preferred podcast platform. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Louisiana Fish Fry, Camellia Brand Beans, Crystal Hot Sauce, Rouse's Markets, the St. Tammany Parish Tourist Commission, and from D'Agostino Pasta, handcrafted in Louisiana from semolina wheat and air-dried over rods in wooden cellars, D'Agostino Pasta is made just as it's been done in Sicily for centuries. Visit D'AgostinoPasta.com to learn more. Support for Louisiana Eats also comes from Gulf Coast Blenders. For more than 30 years, Gulf Coast Blenders has produced custom spice and dry blends for restaurant concepts across the country. Gulf Coast Blenders, dry ingredient blends with New Orleans roots. To learn more, visit gulfcoastblenders.com. Original theme music composed by David Pomerlo and performed by Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to senior producer Joe Schreiner, producer and special projects manager Reggie Morris, producer Blake Longlinay, the newest member of our team, Kate Gotro, and to our business manager and social media maven, Maddie Mulladew. Catch up with us anytime on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting. (laughs) 